Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I asked last week about uh, live streaming. We've been talking about this. I did episode 100 as a live stream to varying degrees of success. And I got a lot of feedback um, and it, it's kind of interesting. It's a little 50-50-ish as to whether people would like to see me, you know, everybody seems to like the idea of me doing more live streaming, but not necessarily changing the format or uh, structure of what I'm doing here with the Q&A, critical Q&A shows. So I'm not going to be changing anything in terms of how the Q&A show goes and we'll keep it in the format that it's been in because as was pointed out to me, uh, it has grown and been successful because of the way that I do it. So I'll keep doing it this way. Uh, why, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> but I am um, personally, not just because YouTube is kind of pushing it, but because I am very keen on um, being more in touch with you guys and giving you more of what it is that you would like from me. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how live streaming might be, might play out as something that would be a format that could be usable on my channel from time to time. I don't think I want to do a weekly live stream, but I think from time to time it might be kind of interesting. And if not in the Q&A show format, then maybe you guys might have some suggestions as to what you would like or not like. To, I'll, I'm wide open right now. Uh, so let me know in the comments what you think. Um, otherwise, things are moving uh, kind of interesting in the world of, of Chris Shelton. I'll be uh, moving. You know, there's boxes all over the place off camera right now in the next week. So this, this, uh, this week coming up, I'll be pre-creating the videos for next weekend before next weekend because <laughs> uh, I'll be a little busy moving around. Um, staying here in Denver, of course, um, just changing location. So. Anyway, uh, all the personal little anecdotes aside, let's go ahead and get on to your questions now. Curious George, when the Going Clear documentary was making big waves in the news and film industries, I noticed a few independent Scientologists on social media and chat sites had voiced complaints about their viewpoints not being included in the dialogue. When Leah Remini's show made similar waves, those same voices seemed to grow in numbers and became extremely agitated toward the series. By the end of the show, they were downright antagonistic and hateful towards Leah and her prominent co-stars. Now, with the recent CNN Believers show about Scientology, the pushback against former members speaking out from other former members or independent practitioners has gone beyond nasty and seems downright nuts. What triggered all this ugly drama? Do some ex-members and independents really want to protect and defend their former church from being exposed as an abusive cult? Or is something else going on? Yeah, it's a big topic. There's a lot uh, of meat here, and so I'm only gonna take little bits, a little couple little bites off this because it's you know there's a there's a lot here. Um, first off, Riza Aslan's show, the Believer show that aired last last week, I was gonna look at doing um, you know a, a video about it as a, as to de deconstruct it, uh, and then I thought after I live tweeted the whole episode, um, I thought. Mm, you know, it's just, it was, it was so, uh, what's the word, banal, it was so bad. I mean, it was just such a poorly put together 
episode in terms of what he was asserting about Scientology and how Scientology operates. The church, independent Scientologists, that, that there's some reformation going on, which is just total nonsense. Um, you know, the, it was just so badly put out there that I thought, wow, I'd have to just like, it would be a very long video deconstructing all of that. It kind of comes back to the thing where, you know, fake news or the Alex Jones types can say something. They can just throw these lines out there like, you know, like Donald Trump does. They just, you know, Obama's wiretapping me. And it takes weeks, months to, to deconstruct and disprove what takes seconds to say. And that's the kind of how it was with Reza's show is, you know, he said so much stuff that was so full of it <laughs> that I would just spend, you know, just a very long time taking it all apart. And I thought, mm, is it really worth my time? Is this guy really worth my time? Did it have that big of an effect in the world at large? Or do we really just want to forget about it? Because the truth of the matter is that Reza Aslan is just a troll. And he just says and does things that he knows are controversial in order to get himself attention. And he's not in it to win it. He's not in it to push some, to push some viewpoint that is truth. He's just making waves for the sake of making waves. And his operating pattern apparently has been, I mean, I'm not, I haven't watched all of his stuff, but apparently to throw out a position, get a bunch of people riled up about it, and then change his stance and make himself look like the, uh, the, the moderate, reasonable person when, you know, all these people are, are, are sitting there having at it over what he started. So I'm not interested in playing that game particularly, so I'm just kind of, I thought, nah, I'll just, I'll just skip the guy. Now, as far as uh, independent Scientologists go, now this is where it gets kind of into a big field, but basically from my experience over the last few years with independent Scientologists, uh, having had back and forth emails and, and, and uh, private messages and tweets and various things, there is a variety of people who are involved in independent Scientology. I guess the one thing they have in common is that they feel that the technology of Scientology is good and is useful and is practical and helpful, and they don't really care about anything else. The, the, um, and by that I mean they don't care about whether L. Ron Hubbard was a con man or a liar. That doesn't matter to them. They're able to slough that off. And because they believe in what he wrote or said, not him. And that's, that's kind of interesting, but it's, I mean, I guess it makes a certain degree of sense in that you might have any scientist or uh, mathematician or, you know, philosopher, somebody who might be a total scoundrel and, and hack and horrible person in his personal life, a philanderer, liar, whatever, but then professionally he produces really good work, right? I mean, you could come down on Isaac Newton for his religious beliefs, and yet there is no question that Isaac Newton's work was, was some of the most genius production ever on this planet from any human being. So, it, you know, the argument is not just about, you know, it's not a totally irrational stance to say, well, I can write off Hubbard in all of his nonsense, and I can still think that what Hubbard discovered or wrote or produced is good stuff. Okay. Um, my problem with independent Scientologists is that what I've found over the years with them is that they cherry pick 
various parts of Scientology that they agree with and they slough off or, or, or cast off all the rest and they don't look at the fact that all of that was produced by L. Ron Hubbard. And so they're kind of willing to give them a pass on what they think is the good stuff and throw out the bad stuff. But, but there's not, you know, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be a very uh, rational examination of the entire thing. So I have disagreements with them because, of course, my position is that there is good stuff in it, but it's outweighed by the destructive stuff. And, you, and if you're going to take Scientology and you're going to take Hubbard's word for what Scientology is, then you have to take the whole thing because Hubbard himself would have railed against and tried to destroy any of these independent Scientologists, a fact that they seem very willing and eager almost to forget. Uh, and that's proven out by history. I mean, Hubbard came after these guys over and over again. Now, to address directly the question here, now that I've given some of that background and, and, and foundation for this, um, what I see happening from what I can you know, d discern from the, the, the tweets and the messages and the Facebook posts and whatnot from independent Scientologists is that they seem to be upset about uh, Leah's show and about critics of Scientology, such as myself, because we, they think we are writing off the good parts of Scientology. We're, we're saying it's a destructive cult. We're saying it's more harmful than beneficial. We're saying that Hubbard was a con man and a liar. I mean, I said, you know, that, that some independent Scientologists are able to write off Hubbard. Some independent Scientologists think he's the cat's meow and the bee's knees and he's just a wonderful guy. And they refuse to look at anything negative about him or any criticism of him. And they don't agree that he was a liar and a con man. So there is a, there is a spectrum within the world of independent Scientology on that. I didn't mean to paint all independent Scientologists as people who slough off Hubbard. Some of them are passionately um, dedicated to him. So anyway, within that spectrum, you get people who have disagreements with and a problem with people like me or people like Leah who have said, well, look, this stuff is really harmful and it, and it destroys people's lives and it's, and it's not. And they, we don't acknowledge to their satisfaction how good they think the technology of Scientology is and how beneficial it is and how it saved their life or other people's lives. And I've tried to go and, you know, express a little bit of a middle path in my videos um, and writing on this in saying that, uh, you know, hey, look, if it's helpful to you, great. I'm not saying that your beliefs are, are ill-founded, that it doesn't count, that what you got out of Scientology doesn't matter. I, I don't think I've said those things, but I have come across pretty harshly about L. Ron Hubbard, about David Miscavige, about the church itself. And I have said that Scientology is as a subject, not just the church of Scientology, but as a subject taken as a whole, the ethics, the justice, the, 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 um, the mind control that goes on just from the subject itself, not just necessarily from the authoritarian church, but um, the way the auditing works, right? Um, the TRs and the, the, the fact that they put you in a hypnotic trance. I mean, that's just a fact. So, to, so I denigrate the technology and they don't like that. 
Um, they think that Leah and people who have been on her show denigrate the technology and they don't like that because some of them are making, some independent Scientologists are making a living by practicing Scientology outside the church. And, uh, and it's very, I think it was, uh, I don't know, Upton Sinclair or Sinclair Lewis, I don't know, one of these Sinclair guys who has some quote about how, you know, you're not going to get very far trying to get a person whose livelihood depends on something to examine it critically. <laughs> and odds are, odds are they're not going to want to look at it too, too closely because they're making a living with it, right? And so, um, so they can't afford to be overtly critical about that subject. And I think that's what you run into in a nutshell, like to kind of encapsulate this whole big answer I've just given here. It's kind of comes down to that is that they are, they're vested in believing that Scientology is still something that is good and true and valuable and that it, um, it helped them, it helps other people. And therefore who am I or Leah or anybody else to downgrade it or castigate it. And this has become more and more passionate over the last you know, year or so as Scientology as a subject, not just the Church of Scientology, but the whole thing has been looked upon with derision and, um, and you know, contempt by people in the big wide world. Because people in the big wide world don't want to have anything to do with L. Ron Hubbard, David Miscavige, Church Scientology, or Scientology itself. And independent Scientologists don't like that. They've always had this idea that they're on the side of right and good, and that, that if they could just get the bad parts out of the church, everything would be great, and Scientology could uh, maybe somehow have a reformation or somehow carry on with you know, this mission that L. Ron Hubbard said of clearing the planet, which is a pipe dream. It's a total fantasy that he created in his followers and some people who come out of the church hold on to that fantasy because it defines who they are. So that's what I um, can say about that. Melissa Maresca. Hi, Chris. I'm a huge fan of yours from the very beginning. It's a well-known fact that the Church of Scientology is vehemently opposed to psychiatry and pharmaceuticals. It's also known that Bob Duggan is one of its billionaire supporters, giving huge donations. Mr. Duggan's wealth comes from his Pharmacyclics Company and the discovery of a drug to treat chronic lymphocytic leukemia. First question, why would a Scientologist work to discover a cure for cancer of any type since according to Hubbard's scriptures, cancer is caused by a second dynamic or sexual upset? Obviously, cancer can only be cured by the practice of Scientology. Second, how is it that the church justifies and accepts the gigantic donations given to them with money made from the enemy? Do they think it's a secret? Seems like competing forces. This is a great question because it goes right to the heart of the hypocrisy of Scientology and really points up what my point has been all along that it is a money-making scam. The, the, the God that David Miscavige worships is money and the Church of Scientology has been directed onto in, in that direction uh, for uh, as long as he's been in charge of it. So when you have somebody like Bob Duggan who wanted to, wants to be a Scientologist um, and he makes a great deal of money through any means, <laughs> then the church is going to take it, right? Uh, very, very rarely, very rarely will the church of Scientology turn down money. 
Uh, there have been a couple cases of it where the person who is giving them the money is somebody who is so weird or strange or unusual or whatever that um, that the church just goes, yeah, no, you're just too weird for us. And so you can understand why that might be a pretty rare circumstance. <laughs> um, but in terms of, as far as Bob Duggan goes, there's so much money there that, you know, Miscavige and Scientology uh, regs and people uh, who in the organization are going to have a real hard time turning that money down. Now, there's some, another, and the way they'll justify it is this, okay? Um, because you're right, Hubbard said that cancer comes from second dynamic activities or some kind of mental aberration. Um, so he basically said in a number of places that it's psychosomatic in nature. Now, Hubbard didn't actually say that all illnesses are um, psychosomatic in nature. In Dianetics, he talks about like, I don't know, 80% of them or something. I mean, he's making big claims. You know, it, it's all nonsense anyway, but it was something like that. Later, he said that all illness in greater or lesser degree stems from being PTS, meaning you're connected to a suppressive person. Um, so psychosomatic, not necessarily, if you're going to split hairs, no, not, not exactly the same thing. So Scientologists could justify taking money from Bob Duggan because they couldn't think uh, since it's kind of a gray area, that the cancer or, you know, whatever it is that Duggan's drugs address could be non-psychosomatic in nature. You know, it's not that all illnesses are from your reactive mind, okay? So, um, you know, people can still get colds and things like that. What Hubbard said later after Dianetics was that the, the PTSness, the connection to a suppressive person, predisposes a person to illness. It makes their body weaker, Some, you know, implied that the, that the um, systems of the body are not as uh, functional, you know, the immune system kind of isn't as, as strong, and so the person gets sick. Excuse me. And this might be some re-stimulation from past experiences and valid actual illnesses. Okay, and this is kind of how Scientologists deal with uh, justifying why OTs get cancer and get sick and die and, and you know, they can just kind of, it's all a matter of cognitive dissonance. It's not a black and white sort of thing. And when you're dealing with how people think and how they justify things, <laughs> I think anybody knows that you can go to some pretty extreme limits to justify almost anything. And that's what goes on with uh, people like Bob Duggan. Now, in terms of the hypocrisy of Duggan working for Big Pharma and then taking money from Big Pharma, another thing that they will say to themselves, the Scientologists, in taking that money is, better that money comes to us than it goes out to um, wherever else it would go, improving psychiatry or reinvesting in Big Pharma or uh, prof, you know, where, where, you know, or spending money on things, you know. It's better that Duggan's money comes to us where we can, you know, use it for good and clear the planet and save the world. Uh, so, again, this is just another example of, of how they'll go through all these mental gymnastics to justify it. But in the end, it's really just about the Benjamins. Dave, I'm fascinated that people can be so controlled that they voluntarily participate in the RPF. 
I've been doing some of my own research online and discovered there's an RPF's RPF. Yikes! Stories of malnourishment, illness, no medical care, no sleep, fighting rats and cockroaches, all even worse than the actual RPF. Did you ever have to do the RPF's RPF or witness any of these human rights abuses beyond regular RPF activities? Uh, thanks for your question, Dave. And I, this is another one of those great big topics that I could literally uh, and am going to literally write a book about. So I'm only going to skim this question and not go into all the nitty gritty details that I know because it would take up this entire show and more. Um, the, on the RPF, on the Rehabilitation Project Force, which is the Sea Org's rehabilitation prison camp Maoist reconditioning system, um, you have uh, punishments. You have what's called rocks and shoals, which are, are punishments that people will be given if they are not getting their work done, if they're not moving fast, if they're found slacking off uh, or committing errors and, and you know just not getting with the program and doing the program as, in the way it's supposed to be done. Um, that means you know if you're if you're not running all the everywhere, if you you know this kind of thing, you can get in trouble. Um, some the the lightest form of the rocks and shoals is uh, dropping and giving 25 push-ups or something, right? Uh, if you're not you know moving fast or or something like that, that's sort of an immediate you know drop and give me 20 or take a lap where you have to then go run around the building, right? Something like that. It's it's going. It's called taking a lap. And if you get and you people get assigned laps all day every day. I mean, I, I got hundreds of times I was I was assigned uh, laps. Now, if a person does something that indicates that they are uh, really not with the program, right? Like they're, it's already stringent enough and bad enough with all the rules and regulations of the RPF. But if you screw up really bad or do something blatantly against the rules, I mean, let's say you are found stealing from somebody else's locker or you, um, you commit adultery on the RPF, like have sexual relations with somebody else on the RPF, which has definitely happened. Uh, because when you're on the RPF, there's no, none of that, right? Even if your wife is there with you, you guys are in separate dorms and you might as well not be married. There is no, there's no touchy, touchy, feely, feely, none of that. So if you're found to have been doing that with your wife or not, um, or if you say, hey, look, I want to leave. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I want to go. During the duration of the time that they're dealing with you wanting to leave, you're going to be, all of these things will put you onto the RPF's RPF. And uh, that is where you have to earn your way back into the RPF. So it gets pretty rough because they're, you know, they're supposed to have even less mealtime and even less benefits, <laughs> if you can believe that. Um, and even tougher, more stringent conditions. And there's a, um, and there's sort of the segregated from the RPF. They have their own little area and that's where you get the cockroaches and rats and stuff is they get the most degraded, horrible, awful places to sleep and work. And, and you got to earn your way out of that by doing above and beyond work that is above and beyond and then writing it all down you know, you're atoning and you're, and you're uh, very contrite and very sorry. And, and uh, this is called a liability formula in Scientology where you have to recognize that 
you know, you were, you know, an enemy of the group and not a good person and you have to, what's called, uh, deliver an effective blow to the enemies of the group one has been pretending to be part of despite personal danger. So, uh, then that's a direct quote of step two of the liability formula. So, um, so then you have to uh, do that. You have to somehow do something. And that's usually interpreted to mean that you have to handle somebody else or you have to do something uh, with someone else to get them straightened out, right? And because, by the way, because when you do the RPF, you're twinned up with somebody else. You and somebody else get each other through the whole RPF program. That's called your twin. If you go to the RPF's RPF, your twin's going with you regardless of whether he did anything or she did anything wrong or not. So, um, so generally speaking, when, when they do that effective blow step, they do something with their twin or they, you know, or maybe let's say you're on the RPF's RPF and there's a, and there's a guy, Joe, who wants to leave the Sea Org and he's done with this whole thing. He's like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Well, you might take a crack at him and try to get him to agree to stay. And if you do, and if he, and if he does agree, then that's a, you know, a feather in your cap to the degree that you can say you delivered an effective blow to the enemy, right? By, by handling Joe to stay in the Sea Org and you've salvaged a Sea Org member. Um, then you have to make up the damage that you've done by personal contribution far beyond the ordinary demands of a group member. That's your step three. And uh, that step involves doing more and more work. And the RPF's RPF is given very menial tasks, um, you know, like setting up the dining area where the, the RPF come in and eat, washing all their dishes, doing their laundry. I mean, this is stuff the RPF's RPF does. And, um, and so they have to, you know, basically tough it out and do extra work um, to then write all this down on a piece of paper and submit it to every single person who's in the regular RPF and get their agreement that you can come back and be in the RPF. <laughs> I mean, like it's some vaunted position that you just can't wait to get back into. But that's the mindset. You know, if you're going to get through the program, you got to do the program. And the only way to get through it is to do it. And so, you know, you got to do all those steps. Uh, otherwise, you're giving up and leaving. And, uh, and people, a lot of people do that. In fact, a higher percentage of people who go into the RPF end up leaving than graduating. Um, and it's kind of a perverse uh, point of pride I have that I actually toughed it out and got through that thing. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of a little sick because the best thing for me at that point would have been to leave. But, but you know, I don't know. I, I have a lot to write about in my book on that when I, when I finally get the, the time to get that done because um, there's a lot to say about the mindset it's not a black and white, easy to understand thing. So I hope to be able to convey that in a lot more detail when I actually get the chance to, to write all that out. So I hope this gives you a little bit of an insight though into that RPF's RPF, what it's all about and how you get out of it and, um, and how bad Scientology and the Sea Org can get because that's how bad it can get. Ms. Yoga Girl. Chris, continued thanks for your mission of spreading knowledge and seeking truth. My question is about international Sea Org members. I know the Sea Org's current recruitment comes mainly from Venezuela and rural Russia. Are these recruits believers to any degree, or are they simply latching on to the opportunity to work for an American church with the hopes of starting a better life in the USA? In your Shane Waitman series, he described the near impossibility of getting his passport back, 
How do any of the SO from these countries ever leave since their passports are confiscated and they're in international waters on a ship? Since many of the SO's policies and punishments make little sense to native-born Americans outside the organization, what do these international recruits make of these abusive and nonsensical tactics? I can't imagine the governments of either Russia or Venezuela taking a personal interest in recovering this small number of citizens, so what recourse do families have to get their international SO family member back home? All right, people who go into the Sea Organization are dedicated Scientologists for the most part, almost one for one, including people from Venezuela and Russia. You don't just walk in off the street and join the Sea Organization. Um, there's definitely, I think, some uh, a few misconceptions in your question that I want to clear up, and that's one of them. Um, so when people join the Sea Org, they do so because they truly believe in Scientology to one degree or another, and they want to see it accomplish its mission of clearing the planet, ridding the world of insanity, war, and criminality. And so that's what they're doing when they, when they sign up. They don't necessarily know what they're getting into in terms of the living conditions, uh, the standard of living, or um, you know, how, they're, how, how rough and disciplined and the schedule and all that. They might not necessarily understand that totally when they go in, but they do understand Scientology. Um, and it's, you know, and if somebody recruits another person into the Sea Org, foreign born or not, uh, you know, they can get in trouble if this person like, you know, bombs out, uh, especially if they bomb out spectacularly. Recruiters are trying to get people to actually make it in the Sea Org, so they want people who are actually dedicated and want to be there. That all being said, I'm sure that there are people from Venezuela, Russia, or anywhere else in the world who would join the Sea Org with the idea of coming to the USA because they think the USA is better than where they're, they're living. Maybe. You know, I'm sure there's some percentage of people who might think that, but I wouldn't say that that is the largest percentage of them, not in my experience. Um, those, the, you know, I met lots of Hungarians, Russians, um, people from Latin America, I don't know about Venezuelans specifically, while I was in the Sea Org. And uh, all of them were very hardcore, dedicated Scientologists. So, you know, they know when they're coming to the USA that they're not, you know, gonna just go live in Montana or something. I mean, they're gonna work on a Sea Org base 24 seven. So uh, again, they, they have to be pretty hardcore about it. And you mentioned uh, being on the ship and having their passport confiscated. That's, that's a very small subset of people who work on the free winds. And that group of people are vetted. You don't just show up on the free winds, as I understand it. You have to, you know, earn your way there. So, um, so again, you're not going to have people just, you know, going to the free ones who aren't with the program uh, to one degree or another. So, as far as people having their passports confiscated, um, if that is, you know, if they show up at a Sea Org base like Flag in Clearwater, Florida, and they're and they and somebody says to them, "Give me your passport." You know, Scientologists and Sea Org members especially are indoctrinated into a mindset where they're going to follow orders. So they're just going to hand it over. And they're not going to wonder, uh, is it legal or not? Is there something fishy about this? Because they trust the church and they trust the people who they work with. So they, they, don't, they don't go into this with a suspicious mindset, wondering how the church is going to screw them. You know, that comes later after you've been there for a few years and the church has screwed you a few times. Then you start going, well, I don't know about this. And then you start going, well, damn, now I don't have a whole lot of money. I don't have a passport. I don't have an ID. What am I going to do here? You know, 
So that comes, all that stuff kind of comes later, not earlier. So anyway, I hope that gets that across. As far as, um, as, far as what the governments do, you know, I know that there was somebody over in, in one of the European countries recently who um, the family did raise a fuss and the Sea Org ended up having to send that person back home. They, they created a little bit of, a, of an incident out of it. And I wish I could remember the country, uh, Romania maybe or, or Hungary, um, but they got their kid back and that uh, was quite a feat for sure. Um, and even when they got the, the kid back, they, the, you know, the kid wasn't happy about coming back. Uh, they had to you know, kind of work, work that person over a little bit to get them out of that cult mindset that they were in. So it's, uh, and I don't mean they deprogram them. I'm not talking about working them over like you know, they, they beat on the guy. I mean, they're just saying they had to reacclimate this person back into a normal life. It's all just part of the recovery process. So that is one instance I know of that happened. Perhaps there are others that didn't get media attention or press that, I'm, that I don't know of. But I know that, um, that families shouldn't necessarily think that they're hopeless or that there's nothing they can do. I think if they make noise through their embassy and through uh, proper you know, channels, they can have an effect and they can get their loved ones back. So there you go. CC Writer. I have watched some of Phil Spickler's YouTube videos. As you know, he is Mimi Rogers' father, Tom Cruise's ex-father-in-law, and knew LRH from 1950 to when he left the church in 1980. He has said that LRH was very innovative given that he was experimenting with self-help for the masses in the 1950s after World War II, which such a thing was completely new. Spickler says he treasures his time from 1950 to 62 or so when there was real work and innovation going on. After that, LRH went off the rails completely. Unfortunately, he hasn't explained how this transformation came about. What do you think about this? I've talked to a couple people who were around back in the 1950s, and Scientology was a wholly different scene back then. Very, very less regulated, very less strict. Many of the organizational things that came about that like the whole ethics and the justice and the sec checking all that you know the the pulling of of all of your crimes and this sort of thing all of that started in the 1960s in the 1950s it was a very freewheeling woohoo sort of thing and there were a lot of people contributing it wasn't all just about l ron hubbard uh, and people knew other people were contributing they knew it wasn't all just l ron hubbard he was definitely the leader and he was definitely the one who was leading the charge but but there were other people who people knew by name who were contributing and who were part of the development of the technology of scientology and it was a it was a freer looser time as that's been described to me people were doing drugs while they were auditing i mean that was it was very loosey-goosey there was a lot more uh, just a lot of things that wouldn't be tolerated in Scientology now. Uh, it was around the 1960s when Hubbard moved to St. Hill Manor in East Grinstead in Sussex, England, that he decided he needed to start taking a more iron grip control of what was going on with Scientology. I think this had to do with government investigations and interference. I think this had to do with maintaining tax exemption. And I think it had to do with Hubbard's own ideas about where Scientology was going. Because he'd been screwing around for 10 years, promising people clear, 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 you're going to go clear. And he wasn't really particularly delivering the goods on that. And then he thought at some point in the late 50s and early 60s that he had finally hit on a way 
to get anybody to clear. And he was started really talking about and pushing this concept of OT, operating Thetan, where you could, you know, move way beyond clear. And, uh, and he had changed his mind about a number of things over the years, like what the, from Dianetics, right? Like for example, in Dianetics, Hubbard talks about the analytical mind and the reactive mind. Well, by the 1960s, Hubbard had decided that the analytical mind was really the Thetan, the spiritual being. And it wasn't an, a separate part of your mind, it was you. And you had this reactive mind, but the nature of the reactive mind, Hubbard had moved on and, and done new developments where he, he, uh, he thought he'd hit on these new mental mechanisms and problems and things that um, are called GPMs. I won't get into all the technical on it, goals, problem, masses, like whatever. But he sort of changed, you know, had, had changed his ideas about, about this stuff. And so in the 1960s, he not only developed these OT levels and said that they were confidential and very harmful if you are exposed to them before you're ready, but he also then felt the need to establish this ethics and justice system. And he also started getting very, very, very paranoid about groups working against him and against Scientology. There were some media articles that happened in the early 1960s and mid-1960s that he had uh, done interviews for. Um, I can't remember the publication, but there was one in particular that really, really pissed him off. He had, he had done some interview, uh, I think it was the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, yeah, I think it was that. And he had he'd given this interview and they just lambasted him. And I think he felt very personally betrayed by that. Then, of course, the IRS was sniffing around and the FBI raid in 19, well, I think that was 63, um, you know, where Hubbard had written to John F. Kennedy and said, hey, we're, we're here to help you guys. And of course, Hubbard wrote off a lot of letters to the government, many of them accusing his detractors of being communists. So it wasn't like he wrote one letter and the, and the FBI came after him. They had a whole file of stuff on this guy. Uh, he came off to the government, if you look at a lot of his letters, as a total paranoid, delusional nutcase. So when he was starting to make you know, motions toward the president, I think they got a little nervous about that. But regardless, uh, they knew that he was personally profiting from Scientology and they were, they were coming after him in court. So Hubbard's level of, uh, of paranoia got to a point where he felt he needed to really come down with an iron fist on his own people and his own organization. And that's when, and that was in the, you know, 1962 was a good, pretty good point for when that really started. And so you see these developments. And of course, by 1967, he's off roaming the seas with the sea organization. And the sea organization came around and the, started coming around the orgs in the late sixties and were enforcing very draconian measures on the staff in order to get them making money and get them, you know, into production. So that became, you know, Scientology started getting more heavy-handed at that point, and it really only got worse and worse as the years went on, as I have talked about on my channel ad nauseum. So that is, um, I think, why Phil was saying what he was saying. You find a lot of, you know, I mentioned earlier in this episode, um, I talked about independent Scientologists. A lot of independent Scientologists are old school Scientologists from the, from the 50s and 60s and 70s when it was uh, at the public level a lot looser, a lot less restricted, a lot less 
uh, ethics and justice on people, a lot less threats and punishment. Now, Scientology is, is much more that than it was back then. And if you want to get a real good compare and contrast on this, watch the interview with, that I did with my mom. It's on the, the front page of my channel, and, uh, and she and I talk about these differences in a lot of detail. So you can also check that out too. That sound indicates it is time for flash answers. Nick C. I've heard that in the past it was fashionable among higher-up members of the Sea Org to imitate LRH by smoking. Is this true? If so, what, if any, was the reasoning behind the inability or unwillingness to stop smoking, clearly an addictive behavior, among the brass, including LRH? Yes. Without question, um, people smoke uh, in Scientology quite a bit, especially as they go up the org board and the stress levels go up higher and higher and the pressures on them uh, are more and more. But Scientologists, man, they smoke like chimneys, especially in the Sea Org. Uh, I, I mean, that's where I started smoking. And, uh, and I, you know, I'd never, I, I told myself from day one I wasn't going to let myself get addicted to it because I saw a lot of people very addicted to cigarette smoking. But I also found out after that um, that Hubbard actually addressed this in lectures that he gave in the St. Hill Special Briefing course in the 60s where he said, you know, that it's not a bad thing, that nicotine's good for you. <laughs> Nicotinic acid is something that's supposed to do your body good. So Hubbard had it, you know, he was preaching uh, a whole different message to, to his choir. And, um, and he, of course, smoked, you know, unfiltered cools. So you know, if, if it was good enough for Hubbard, it was good enough for them. I mean, that's literally what I told myself. I smoked cools. I smoked filtered cools. <laughs> that's what I smoked. Um, and I told myself that that was the reason why. So it's not really, you know, there's not a lot of thought given in by Scientologists to, you know, addiction and whatnot. Now, I'll temper that a little bit by this other anecdote, which is that my parents did quit smoking in the 1980s. Um, because they told themselves, look, here we are going up these OT levels, supposedly going freer and freer as spiritual beings, and yet we can't quit smoking, right? This was my mom's rationale, so she quit. And, um, and my dad had other issues, and he got those under control, too. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. That was, uh, I think it's an individual case-by-case case a little bit with Scientologists, but from my own anecdotal experience, that's what I can tell you about smoking and why Sea Org members and Scientologists think it's totally fine to smoke um, because, you know, there's a, that emulation going on there and because Hubbard gave them lots of good reasons to smoke and not believe the, you know, propaganda about how smoking's bad for you. Leo Taxel. How many members does Scientology need to survive? Could they operate with as few as 10,000 people? More, less? Thoughts and opinions? Thanks in advance. I think Scientology could still operate as long as it, all, as long as it was still getting money in. It would really depend on the inflow of cash and how much David Miscavige wanted to pull from reserves in order to keep the thing going. Or is there some point where he would go, oh yeah, no, this isn't worth it to me anymore and, and just you know hit the eject button and take the money with him. But I think they could operate with as few as 10,000 people. I think they could go down to 5,000 people. By that point, of course, they would be closing orgs 
and they'd probably be very, you know, centered in on maybe something like Clearwater, Florida, where Miscavige is making massive real estate uh, investors and and trying to turn Clearwater into, you know, Scientology Central. Um, and that might well be the reason why he's doing that is because he's trying to establish a home base for himself and for Scientology that can, you know, sort of like go down to a very controlled area that he is the master of because Hemet, California and San Jacinto certainly isn't that anymore. That base is, is uh, totally, I don't know what word you want to use, compromised by all, by the whole and the, and the, and the bad press and, and toxic media that comes out of it. So I think Miscavige might have the idea of reinventing Scientology's image in Clearwater as this wonderful, great thing. But that's a pipe dream because, and, he, and Miscavige is just delusional, but that might be his idea. And in which case, it could go down to just the people in Clearwater. Theoretically, Scientology could reduce to that and still operate. So that's what I think. Jennifer, do you think David Miscavige can be helped? He seems like he is probably a narcissistic sociopath with a bent towards OCD and paranoia as defined by the current DSM guidelines and the comments of others on his behaviors. Do you think his childhood was more abusive than his father allows in his bio of his son? Or perhaps this behavior and way of seeing the world is biologically hardwired in him and completely unalterable. If he is as others describe him, he must be a miserably unhappy person. Is there any chance he could change, get better, become aware of this, or is this so concrete, so core to his personality that he will just live and die this way? Tough question, Jennifer, and really all I can do is give you my extremely unprofessional and uh, medically uneducated opinion about it, which is that I think that he was born with you know, some certain tendencies uh, in the direction of, uh, of violence and authoritarianism, and I think he's probably a pretty miserable person, and I think he's going to stay that way. I think it's part of his, uh, in terms of, um, you know, is it part of his genetics or is it part of his upbringing? I, you know, I think it's probably a mixture of both. Um, and I, you know, and I don't know that he's going to see the light or have a Scrooge moment or something like that, um, because I don't think it's in, in his nature to do so. And I don't know how many people would really want to assist him in having a Scrooge see the light kind of moment, because he's a pretty horrible guy to be around. And he, um, you know, doesn't trust anybody else around him. And he's, I think you're dead on right that he's probably a miserably unhappy person. But that's all just my opinion. And I'm, I'm telling you straight up that I don't have any other uh, insight into him than that. But that's what I think. And, uh, and I don't think he's ever going to be a, a truly happy person because of what he... I, I think that people like that who make their lives focused on and... Uh, dependent on victimizing other people for their own aggrandizement, I, I don't, I don't, th I don't see how happiness could be any possible outcome of that kind of behavior or lifestyle. Okay, and with that, we are at the end of our show. I hope you got something out of my answers here this week, and I hope that uh, you're finding my channel educational, informative, and interesting, and entertaining all at the same time, because that's the goal here. Again, please give me any comments, feedback, up, down, or sideways about the show, any questions you have, or again, anything that you might be interested in seeing me doing in terms of live streaming on my channel. I'm very interested in your feedback on that. 
And of course, as always, I will put a plug in to please throw some love my way through PayPal or by joining my Patreon campaign. That is what allows me to keep doing this. And I thank you very much for your support. Bye-bye.